This is the, the cracked record. Uh -huh. to introduce John Gibbs, our special projects librarian. Tell me, John, what is a special li projects librarian and what do they do? Uh, special projects librarian is sort of a made-up okay. name and uh, you do uh, whatever you need to do. <laughs> special projects. Basically, my special projects is digitizing um, sound recordings. Uh, for the most part, early sound recordings, uh, what one would often refer to as 78 RPM discs, although 78 is a misnomer because the speeds vary quite a bit. I also do some tapes. As you can see, I have a couple tape recorders here, and we have a cassette deck. And so we deal with all three of those mediums. Uh, the one medium that we have around here occasionally are cylinders, and we don't have a cylinder player, so we don't deal with that. Medium. That's part of the project to look for um, similarities with the catalog at UC Santa Barbara? That's right. Yes, UC Santa Barbara, uh, if uh, one looks at their webpage, one would find that they have digitized a large number of Edison cylinders and uh, made those available publicly. We are checking through our holdings to see which uh, recordings that we might have that they don't have in their collection with the plan to uh, send them to Santa Barbara to uh, have them digitized there. Run us through a typical day in this project, <laughs> okay. if there is such a thing. Well, sometimes there are stretches that uh, are very similar, but uh, typically I have in hand uh, a group of uh, 78 RPM records that will vary from uh, in, in age from uh, roughly uh, 1905 to 1935 or so. With this group, I put them on the turntable and digitize them. And in doing so, we run into several problems. One, as I mentioned before, the speed, 78, is not a standard speed. It was not standardized until after World War II to 78.26, to be very precise. Uh, but early recordings were often recorded at 80 RPM. Sometimes, in the case of uh, Path A discs, they were recorded at 90 RPM. Also, well, with Path A's, for instance, instead of the, the groove being recorded laterally, uh, it is recorded vertically up and down, and this is the way Edison recorded also. Uh, path A, even to be a little bit different, recorded from the inside of the record to the outside of the record. So uh, you have these things to deal with. Uh, also, there's the, the groove size, there's no standardized version of of how a groove was created. Each record company had their own idea of uh, how the groove was created on the record, and so we have a library of uh, styluses that we try to match with the grooves in the record. Basically, 
Uh, a lot of old records were played with uh, steel styli. And one of the um, things about the early records is that one of the components of the disc was uh, the abrasive carborundum. And when a steel stylus uh, touched the record, the carborundum would grind down the stylus to a specific shape, which worked fine for most of the record, but as you got toward the end of the record, typically the carborundum had done such a marvelous job of grinding the stylus that it is a very sharp point, and so it is digging in to the record, and so the record is sort of self-mutilating uh, <laughs> as uh, you get uh, toward the end, and so you get some some pretty strange sounds toward the end of the record. But with different size styli, often you can move up the groove walls to find a non-damaged spot to make for a better recording. And so in some cases we might have to use three different styluses on different parts of one record uh, to get the best sound and then splice those uh, parts together digitally. <laughs> and it can be a very time-consuming thing. I, um, before we started recording you saw me uh, doing a, a little bit of editing in which uh, we get down to the bit level digitally speaking and uh, we have uh, 96,000 dots uh, available to us each for each second of uh, recorded sound and we can manipulate all of those dots to try to move them around in a place uh, so that we take out some scratchy sounds from the disc. So it's kind of like the world's largest and longest connect the dots puzzle, only it, you don't know what it's supposed to look like. Well, you, you know sort of what, you know what the music sounds like for the most part we know the piece of music and so we know how it goes and we know uh, when we're taking out uh, too many of those dots so that we are uh, really interrupting the the actual music but if you're taking out uh, say um, a hundredth of a second uh, it's not noticeable at all if you're taking out um, a second of music, then it becomes noticeable. It's a matter of limiting how much editing you do and also what the limit of um, the of audio perception is when one hears a break in the music or not. Early on in, in analog sound restoration, there was uh, some home equipment made that uh, actually uh, shut down. Whenever it would hear a pop, it would shut down for a fraction of a second. So essentially you would have uh, these blank spots in the sound, but you wouldn't, but uh, uh, oral perception is such that you would not sense that there was nothing there. So in, in this case, though, what we do is um, we remove the most discon 
continuous <laughs> of sounds, so that uh, and because there is no gap at all, we don't notice their absence. That's right. We don't notice their absence. We, but we could even make silence, uh, you know, small silent spots if necessary, and uh, you wouldn't notice it. It's all uh, part of the whole uh, audio perception uh, game that um, researchers and um, the area of uh, what is called systematic musicology deal with, music perception. Where did you um, study to learn how to do this restoration work? Uh, basically, I'm self-taught. Uh, we got a gift collection in 1976 of uh, approximately 1,500 early recordings. When we accepted that collection, we uh, determined that to properly care for that collection, that we would need to have um, the equipment necessary. And fortunately, at that time, the library was able to provide us with the uh, analog equipment necessary to play back those recordings as best one could play them back at that time in 1976. The Packburn transient noise suppressor was a piece of equipment that had just come out at that time, and and it did a marvelous job of of, of basically auditing the two sides of the groove wall, constantly choosing the best sounding side of the groove wall, and did a terrific job. And that was one of the pieces of equipment that we uh, had back in the analog days to work with. Of course, if you had to do any uh, splicing, which we easily do digitally now, you had to do it by hand with the razor blade and uh, uh, splicing tape. Uh, quite arduous task compared to uh, some of the things we can do today. But on the other hand, uh, with the digital editing, uh, one finds that it's uh, easy to get overly involved and to do too much work on uh, the problems that you see that we probably would have let go in the early days. Uh, so that's a trade-off. Always trade-offs. Always trade-offs. Mm -hmm. um, could you run us through the audio chain that um, you're working with today? Sure. Yeah, I have a, a turntable that has a variable speed turntable so that I can uh, set it at any uh, speed I want. And uh, if uh, knowing the the uh, the pitches or the key that a piece of music is in, I uh, have a uh, a stroke or a, a tuner that I look at and match the pitch and adjust the speed. For the recording, the problem with early recordings is, especially in uh, England, and most of these recordings that we have come from England, is that there was no pitch standard at the time, so that uh, especially bands played at one pitch, and orchestras played at another, and you never know exactly uh, what pitch they're, they, which, uh, what pitch standard they're using. It wasn't until later on that um, the A equals 440 hertz became a 
standard with which all orchestras tuned. And now that's even changing because you have some orchestras that are particularly high and they tune to an A446 and so forth. So it's a, it's a problem uh, determining the speed. And uh, the turntable that we have here, uh, in addition to uh, being able to play at different speeds, can play forwards and backwards. Uh, sometimes if uh, you have trouble tracking over a particular uh, damaged spot in a record, you find that uh, you can play the record backwards and it will track through that spot. So we can do that. We can adjust it so that it will uh, play either the lateral or vertical um, motion um, of the stylus. And uh, we can also play 16-inch discs. And we do have some 16-inch discs in the collection. Most of the 16-inch discs were used by radio stations for transcriptions um, so that uh, you had uh, uh, 15 minutes of, uh, uh, of a program on a side. And this is sort of an, and another 15 minutes on the back side. And this sort of the, the, uh, the deterioration of the sound toward the center, uh, I mentioned uh, earlier with uh, the uh, problem with the, the uh, stylus cutting into the uh, disc. There's, a, there's also another problem in that if uh, you consider a disc uh, going at 78 RPM and uh, think about it, you, it is not constant linear velocity. The velocity changes as you go forward, so it's the, the, uh, the groove is passing, um, or the stylus is passing over the groove much faster at the outside of the record than it is the inside of the record. And so the quality deteriorates as you get to the inside of the record also because of that factor. Mm -hmm. And with uh, the 16-inch uh, radio discs, uh, they neatly started on the outside and went to the inside for the first 15 minutes, and then they would take a station break or commercial or whatever, and for the second half, they would start uh, the second side on the inside and go to the outside, so that the beginning and the end of the show, the quality would be much better than it would be in the middle <laughs> of the show. So I guess they basically figure that um, you're already tuning in, so what you want to remember are the beginning and the you end. You would remember the beginning and the end more than you would the, the middle. And uh, what was that the basic method of syndication? Um, yeah, sure. Right. And... Um, so for old-time radio fans, for right. example, the Lone Ranger episodes or Dragnet uh, would all come out on 16-inch right. discs? Exactly. So then they, they would be sent to the local your local radio station so that they could put it in a time slot they wanted rather than having to uh, be controlled by the network as to exactly when something was going to be aired. So from the tune, uh, the actual turntable, it mm -hmm. goes into an equalizer. It goes into yeah, actually, it goes in the the uh, stylus needs to be, uh, the sound coming through the stylus needs to be amplified, so there's what is called a preamplifier and uh, an equalizer. And um, the, um, 
uh, without trying to get overly technical here, th with uh, equalization um, deals with uh, adjusting the bass and the treble so that uh, you can get a good playback. Um, and this is used only in electrical recordings. And electrical recordings came about in roughly 1924, 1925. Different companies started doing uh, electrical recordings at different times. But before that, all the recordings were made through an acoustic horn. Uh, people stood in front of the horn or an orchestra gath gathered around the horn and uh, uh, performed the music in uh, what we think of as a quite crude way of, of, of producing music, but it surprisingly uh, uh, worked with uh, some, some very good results. As one would expect, solo singing, solo instruments work best because you could get right real close to the horn and um, uh, play. So you have a lot of flute and piccolo solo being recorded. The cornet, cornet solos were very popular and uh, the voice uh, could be recorded quite well. So, but when electrical recordings came along, um, one discovered that uh, the grooves for the low notes, the grooves would be very wide and for the high, high notes or high pitches, the grooves were very, very shallow or very close together. Because they're mimicking the actual waveform. Mm -hmm. And so what um, they did uh, is they adjusted the bass so that it wasn't so present. And the high parts they adjusted so they would be more present. And then on playback, the reverse would happen so that you would get the bass at the right level and the treble at the right level. And so that's this equalization. In England, they didn't use uh, a treble equalization at all, they just used a, a bass equalization. And so you can see right now that I have uh, the turnover set at 300 hertz and uh, a flat roll-off. And that is uh, very typical of um, uh, European recordings. They were, um, it this is uh, it's a very strange thing that uh, in uh, Europe they were willing to put up with, with more of uh, the high frequency crackle sound on a record than we were in this country. So um, they uh, didn't do anything with the treble, but in the U.S. we would uh, do what is called uh, rolling off the high frequencies. And so at, uh, we would adjust the, the high frequencies so they would not be quite as uh, noticeable as um, with European recordings. Huh. It's a, it's a, yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting concept, and it <clears throat> it takes some uh, thought to um, to figure out exactly what's going on there.
explaining equalization is not an easy thing. But a actually, at any, at any rate, once we get through <laughs> equalizing things, we go into uh, an analog to digital converter, and uh, it is converting the analog sound at the rate of uh, 96,000 uh, 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 par portions per second so that you have um, a, a lot of samples taken uh, from the music. And uh, we have a bit, what is called bit depth of 24 bits, and that allows for a wide uh, dynamic level in the music. And um, 96, 24, as we refer to it as, is the archival standard. So we have um, captured that digitally, and then we also make a copy at 44.1 kilohertz and 16 uh, uh, bits, bit depth, so that, um, and that corresponds with uh, the uh, standard for um, audio CDs. So that's standard playback. And so, then that copy, uh, we clean that copy up um, as much as we can so that uh, if someone comes uh, to uh, the library and wants to listen to it, that's the copy we would play for them. And uh, uh, it's a reasonably sounding uh, copy of the music. Whereas the archival quality copy is in its most pristine state, well, not unedited no, state. Not <laughs> the sound is not pristine. It is in the state that it comes off of the uh, the record, not cleaned up. So you get all of the uh, the grunginess of uh, pops, crackles, and uh, whatever is on the record. Yeah. Before we put the record on the on, on the turntable, we, we we cleaned it as as carefully as possible. So we're uh, playing a very clean record, but, uh, you know, if you're playing a record from, that's a uh, hundred years old, one uh, uh, can imagine what kind of use or abuse that record has gone through uh, in that time period, and uh, some of them can be pretty ugly. Well, after a hundred years, I think um, I have a piece of music is entitled for a little bit of crotchetiness. <laughs> right. Um, I, I understand uh, the concept of um, sampling at a higher rate for a higher um, ability to resolve the actual quality of music. Mm -hmm. How does bit depth um, influence that? Basically, it's dy the dynamic range. The, the, it allows you to uh, record louder and softer than you otherwise can. That's the basic uh, difference. Uh, after the signal comes out of the digital signal processor and it's a digital signal, mm -hmm. it goes into a computer. Yeah, it's captured by some, um, uh, uh, audio software. Um, we have a couple. We have uh, WaveLab, which we use to uh, ca capture the sound originally. And then we have um, Sony SoundForge that we use to manipulate uh, the sound when we get it to the 44.1 16-bit uh, 
level. And that's what you've been doing all morning, piecing together bits of a cracked record? That, that's right. This is a recording that was made in uh, 1925 by a person who was largely responsible for the School of Music here at the University of Washington, Stanley Chapel, who was uh, the music director for the Aeolian Vocalion Company in England at that time. And that was that important time in that that was at the time of a, that changeover from acoustical recording to electrical recording. We're trying to capture as many uh, recordings as we can that he made at that time, and we have one that is cracked, and it uh, poses some fun problems for us to solve. Uh, could you talk a little bit about some of the collections you're working on right now? Sure. This past year I've worked on the Harris Wind Collection. It's a collection of early recordings that uh, were purchased uh, from a collector in England in uh, about 1980 or so, I think we got that collection. And um, the collection is principally those of uh, solo wind, uh, music for solo wind instruments or um, orchestral pieces that display uh, prominently wind instruments. It's very, very interesting. Um, you get a, a real glance at um, sort of the musical tastes of the time when you're when you have a large collection of uh, recordings made from um, 1905 to 1915 or 1920. You see what kind of what kind of music was being recorded, what kind of music was being listened to, and. Uh, it uh, certainly is uh, a lot different than uh, anything that anyone would listen to today. You mentioned there are used recordings available. Um, where would uh, University of Washington students go in order to listen to? Uh, right now, pieces? right now it's very difficult. It's uh, we're in the process of of, uh, of just starting to uh, work out how best to make uh, recordings available. And we have one person who's who's uh, creating uh, a f an archival finding aid for uh, the collections. And at some point, we're hoping that we will be able to link the recording to the um, finding aid, and one could go directly from the finding aid to the recording. You have to realize that um, the there's. Um, a complex of copyright laws at work here. Um, presently, the the thinking uh, in the legal world is that anything recorded for be before 1923 is fair game. After that, it becomes complex because you're dealing with two things. When you're dealing with a sound recording, you're dealing with the copyright of the piece of music itself, and then you're dealing with the object, the, the record, or we're storing those things away until a time as to when it becomes clear that we can make that material available. And because we're doing that, that material will still exist in 40 or 50 years when it becomes legal for us to actually <laughs> listen to it again. That, that's right.
and we thank you very much for all your efforts in making that happen. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John.